Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing! We're going to start off this episode a little bit differently with my best friend from childhood, Matt Beckner, reading a passage that he also read at my wedding back in 2008 from a book written by the third most popular poet in history. The point of marriage is not to create a quick commonality by tearing down all boundaries. On the contrary, a good marriage is one in which each partner appoints the other to be the guardian of his solitude, and thus they show each other the greatest possible trust. Emerging of two people as an impossibility, and where it seems to exist, it is a hemming in, a mutual consent that robs one party, or both parties, of their fullest freedom and development. But once the realization is accepted that even between the closest people, infinite distances exist, a marvelous living side by side can grow up for them. If they succeed in loving the expanse between them, which gives them the possibility of always seeing each other as a whole and before an immense sky. Except this reading isn't from that book. Nope. It's from Raina Maria Rilke. Hey, there's a clue. And once upon a time, I knew that. But for the last several years, I've been remembering and telling people about how I had a passage from a different book read at my wedding. I know, because you told me that story, and then told me when you figured out you were wrong. <laughs> I know. It must be some kind of egregious sin to misremember something from one of the most memorable days of my life. But when I began researching this episode after you and I went down a rabbit hole about books that entered the public domain this year... Aha! Another clue. I went into my old copy of the book I thought the reading was from, and I was way confused when the words in the section on marriage were not the words I was expecting to see. You go to enough weddings of secular people with liberal arts degrees and spend enough time on the literary internet, and I can see how you start to think that this particular book is a required component. If not exactly a household name, the author seems at least vaguely familiar in certain circles. It's an understandable mistake. Is it, though? I mean, the book has sold more than 100 million copies in dozens of languages. It's never been out of print since its original publication in 1923. And the author's status as the third best-selling poet in history puts him in the company of Shakespeare and Lao Tzu. The book is The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. And with that kind of track record, why isn't he a household name? Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. And I'm Jeff O'Neill. On today's episode, a look at the most popular poet you probably haven't heard of and the tricky question of how an author can be both wildly beloved and widely unknown. Explode your to-be-read pile with the New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. 
Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing! Khalil Gibran was born in Lebanon in 1883. His mother brought him and his siblings to the United States when he was 12, while Gibran's father, who reportedly abused her, was in jail. They settled in Boston, joining relatives who were already there. At the time, immigrants into Boston found the uh, least expensive housing in Chinatown, which is where they, they settled. And Gibran was already 12 when he came, uh, almost 13, and was put into public schools. And there he was in a, in a Boston school with the Chinese children, and uh, I think was quite bewildered. He, he only gradually learned English, but he was very good at art. This is Dr. Juan Cole, an historian whose expertise includes the Middle East in social and intellectual histories. He is an expert on Gibran's work and has written translations of several of his books. So he came to the attention of social workers uh, who were in the Boston school system, and it was a, something that the school system uh, had put in place to identify gifted children. And there was a Thursday afternoon gathering at a particular house uh, that they brought these children and uh, exposed them to really the Boston avant-garde. So photographers like Fred Holland Day would come by and they would take the children or the teenagers on weekend excursions to the opera, where they would take them on a picnic and read to them Whitman or Nietzsche. Gibran absorbed a few years of this rich cultural education, developing his own artistic skills along the way, before going back to Lebanon to attend a well-known preparatory school when he was 15. Four years later, in 1902, he returned to Boston and gradually made a name for himself as an artist. He held his first exhibition in 1904 at Fred Hollanday's Boston studio. There, he met someone who would change the course of his life. So Gibran came up through that uh, program and was able to get patronage to exhibit his art. But he wrote that at some point, as he got older, he felt that he'd be most successful if he could combine art and his writing. He had a, a patron, Mary Haskell, who was a Southerner uh, transplanted and was a headmistress of a girls' school in Boston, who took on young men as um, educational projects and paid for their education. She sent Gibran to Paris, where he studied in the circle of Rodin, symbolic art. Haskell helped Gibran arrange showings for his art, and she provided networking connections and important introductions. When he began to write in English, he had already been published in Arabic by the expatriate Arab press in New York. She served as his editor, ultimately guiding him to submit his first book, called The Madman, to a young publisher named Alfred A. Knopf. Knopf, whose eponymous imprint is now an anchor of Penguin Random House's reputation, published The Madman, a collection of aphorisms and parables written in language that blended poetry and prose. In 1918, there was another book in 1919, and still another in 1920, and they did well enough to keep Knopf interested. Then in 1923, when Gibran was 40 years old, there came The Prophet. It's a collection of 26 prose poems that read almost like sermons, in which a wise man named Al-Mustafa is preparing to set sail for his homeland after 12 years in exile on a fictional island. 
Before he leaves, the residents ask him to impart wisdom about, well, life, the universe, and everything. The prophet contains entries on love, children, giving, joy and sorrow, crime and punishment, self-knowledge, freedom, beauty, pleasure, pain, and yes, even on marriage. Love one another, but make not a bond of love. Let it rather be a moving sea between the shores of your souls. Fill each other's cup, but drink not from one cup. Give one another of your bread, but eat not from the same loaf. Sing and dance together and be joyous, but let each one of you be alone. Even as the strings of a lute are alone, though they quiver with the same music, give your hearts, but not into each other's keeping, for only the hand of life can contain your hearts. And stand together, yet not too near together, for the pillars of the temple stand apart, and the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow. It's fair to say that whatever expectations Kanaf and Gibran had for the prophet, they got blown out of the water. It took off. It went, it, we would now say it went viral. It became a publishing phenomenon. The first print run of 1,200 copies sold out in a matter of months. That's a respectable performance for a book of poetry by a mostly unknown writer, even by today's standards. Every year it sold more and more and more. And by the 1930s and the era of the Great Depression, it was selling hundreds of thousands of copies a year. And it only picked up steam in the decades that followed. By the 1960s, upwards of 5,000 copies of The Prophet were sold each week. Let's stop to take that in. This was a book so successful that it not only stayed in print for decades, but managed to sell increasingly more with each passing decade. And this for a title that wasn't a work of fiction. Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis was published the same year and is the only still-recognized title on the list of that year's best-selling fiction. Remember, this is a collection of esoteric poetry. So how did it happen? What was it about the prophet that resonated with readers in 1923, and even more readers in 1943, and still more in 1963? I think that urban America was secularizing in those years. And I think that there was a thirst for a non-fundamentalist form of spirituality. And, you know, in the Great Depression, there's polling evidence that people were angry at God about uh, the straits to which they were reduced. And I think it, it became mutual that people also then turned on conventional religion. Okay, now this I can wrap my head around. When the way you've understood the world no longer seems to fit, you go looking for a new one. It's not the full eat, pray, love, but putting down the Bible and picking up a work of mystical poetry makes human sense. And so you had, you know, people joining the Communist Party, which is frankly atheist and so forth. So I think, I think that at least in the, from 29 forward, some of the popularity of the prophet was that people weren't willing to give up a spiritual point of view on life, but they just turned, some of them turned against conventional religion. So Christianity wasn't cutting it anymore, but people were still seeking answers to the persistent big picture questions that define life. What do you do when you don't want to quote 1 Corinthians 13 at your spiritual but not religious wedding? How will you replace love is patient, love is kind? Well, how about with love gives not but itself and takes not from itself. Love possesses not, nor would it be possessed. For love is sufficient unto love. Let me guess. That's from the prophet. Bingo. And so they began reading the prophet at weddings. That was when the custom began, was in the Great Depression. 
as an alternative to the Bible. You know, people would read the Psalms and the Song of Solomon and so forth. And so they substituted Gibran for that. Other than a brief campaign around its original publication, the prophet has never been advertised. So word-of-mouth recommendations compounded from one generation of readers to the next, from couples who incorporated Gibran's words into their wedding ceremonies in the 1930s and 40s to their children and grandchildren, who would become the hippies of the 1960s. And that's where it really takes off. In the 60s, there was a youth counterculture, which was extremely influential. Those were the ones who were experimenting with uh, what were called at the time Eastern religions. And so Steve Jobs' fascination with Buddhism comes out of that period. Hindu gurus uh, were popular. And so in that context where, again, I think in part because of the Vietnam War, which was supported to the hilt by the American religious establishment, And the young people felt entirely different about it. So there was a lot of rebellion, again, against conventional religion and conventional society. And so people tapped into the message of the prophet. The one millionth copy sold in 1957, just before the confluence of events Dr. Cole describes made it the Bible of the counterculture. Since then, it has sold north of 9 million more in the U.S. and more than 90 million worldwide. So how can it be that this book, this undeniable smash hit commercial success that has managed to stay culturally relevant for almost a century, isn't at the top of school reading lists and in a place of honor on every family bookshelf? Why isn't Khalil Gibran a household name? In academic terms, the real question is whether an author gets into the canon. The canon is a list of well-regarded works taught typically by English professors. And I think Gibran initially had a shot at being in the canon in the sense that he published in avant-garde Boston Journal, The Dial, uh, which also was where T.S. Eliot was publishing at the time. And so he was, you know, thought of as a comer. But, and maybe this speaks to the timelessness of the prophet's appeal, Gibran missed the trend. He was a symbolist at a time when modernism was the hot new thing. And I think that the college professors of 1930 were starting to be under the influence of the modernists and saw symbolism as old hat. And so they didn't bring Gibran into the canon. So Gibran's first shot at the canon was over before the prophet really even hit the stratosphere. And stylistic concerns aren't the only factor that can keep a book off syllabi. I think that when one thinks about the canon... They're not typically the tubby paperbacks you find at the airport. And I think that the professors may have felt that anything that popular couldn't possibly be good, that there was a certain amount of elitism. You can hear one critic wrestle with and ultimately reject the notion that what is popular cannot possibly be good in this piece from the New York Times Speaking of Books column in 1957. Quote, I would say that the prophet's sale is both understandable and deserved, which are, of course, two quite different things. It is understandable, first of all, because the period in which it had flourished is one in search of reassurance and avid for answers to its perplexing questions about life. That quest has been so widespread and so intense that scores of inferior books offering pat and easy answers have fattened on it to the end that inspirational has become almost a dirty word. You might describe the prophet by that adjective, but not in a derogatory sense. For it contains that scarce commodity, wisdom. Because it does, and because Gibran at times achieves a biblical majesty of phrase, one can say that its sale is not only understandable, but deserved. 
But that critic sounds like the exception rather than the rule, even today. As Philip Meters noted in a piece published on LitHub last year, contemporary poets are relentless in their derision of Gibran, placing his poetry somewhere between Jewel and Jimmy Carter. Ouch. I guess wisdom, inspiration, and answers to life's perplexing questions are too common to be respectable. It appears that the very things that gives Gibran's work enduring appeal are the same ones that prevent it from being widely celebrated as a classic or canonical. Surely it's no accident that readers recommend this beautifully written work of spiritual advice by word of mouth rather than shouting it from the rooftops. We all need answers to the existential questions, but we're not supposed to be proud of it. So the prophet, which has reportedly sold nearly as many copies worldwide as a little book called The Hobbit, lives in a strange in-between place in our cultural imagination. It is beloved by many and yet somehow known by few. But the ones who love it really love it. It has been rated on Goodreads more than 190,000 times and has an average rating of 4.23 stars. That's higher than Shakespeare. A Google search for Khalil Gibran on marriage alone turns up more than a million results. Etsy sellers offer posters, paintings, and even prayer flags inscribed with Gibran's words. There was even an animated adaptation, a really interesting choice for such adult material, in 2015, starring Salma Hayek, Liam Neeson, John Krasinski, and Kevenjane Wallace. My grandfather, who was Lebanese, always had the book, and he died when I was six. Later on, I found the book again. I was very close to my grandfather, and when I saw the cover, it's actually a drawing by Khalid Gibran, who was also an artist. I picked it up and I read it, and I felt like it was my grandfather teaching me a li- about life through this book. That's Selma Hayek describing how she came to the project through, you guessed it, a book passed down through her family. The film, which cost an estimated $12 million to make and was written by Roger Allers, who directed The Lion King, grossed barely 300000 at the box office. And let me tell you, it's a trip. I just think it, it has these popular networks of uh, continued interest. Although, as we speak, it's in a trough, uh, so it's, it's not viral at the moment. But it could be soon. The Prophet entered public domain on January 1st of this year, which means that anyone can use it or adapt it without, without having to obtain permission. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities now for expressing the thoughts that are in, in the Prophet in new ways. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if there's another wave of popularity for him. Penguin Classics has already released a new edition with a foreword by Instagram's poet laureate Rupi Kaur. So maybe it's just a matter of time before Gibran joins Rumi and Mary Oliver as poets whose words appear on images of ocean waves and ancient mountains in our social feeds. There would be a certain, forgive me, poetic justice to the original viral poet finally getting his due. And not only that, bringing Gibran back to the forefront of cultural conversation, if not belatedly installing him in the canon, could have other positive consequences. One thing that we said is that in our age of Islamophobia and a kind of negative association of things Middle Eastern, uh, recovering Gibran as a Middle Easterner could be an important cultural enterprise. One can't help but think that Gibran would have been both frustrated and unsurprised by the persistence of the problems we face today, but also that he'd be happy to contribute to our search for answers. And the answer to how I misremembered my wedding reading and thought it was Gibran in the first place? Well, I'm a lucky member of one of those networks of continued interest, a child of parents who were just hippie enough to keep a worn copy of The Prophet on the living room bookshelf. It's a book I've always known and one I've never really understood until right now. Here's hoping that the next hundred million readers will keep it in the light. 
This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Rebecca Shinsky. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. Special thanks to my dear friend, Matt Beckner, for generously recreating a memory I remember and misremember fondly. Thanks also to Dr. Juan Cole. His most recent book, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, is available from Nation Books. You can also find his translations of some of Gibran's other books through your bookseller of choice. You can follow Annotated on Twitter and Instagram at AnnotatedFM. And if you like the show, we'd love a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find their way to us. Until next month, read something great.